Get ahead of the postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Thank you very much. I will start with a brief introduction of our guests, and I'm not under the illusion that any of you came here, or any of us, including myself, and just came here to listen to me. So I, I came to listen to you. Um, I'll shortchange you. Oh, man. Uh, as most of you would be very familiar with Caroline Glick's background, but just in a word, she was born to prove the fecundity of the great state of Texas. She was born in Texas, but raised in Chicago. And she went to Israel in 1991, and indeed emigrated, and um, spent, I think, four or five years in the uh, Israeli Defense Forces. First, if my memory's good, in the um, Judge Advocates Department, but then uh, as a specialist in Palestinian affairs, and was, I believe you negotiated with the Palestinians following the Oslo Agreement. Uh, and she is a graduate of Columbia and Harvard universities with a space in between, and was mustered out of the IDF as a captain. And, um, and she's had a remarkable career as a journalist, including a time as managing director of the Jerusalem Post Unfortunately, not when I was its chief shareholder. Otherwise, I, would, I might have emigrated to Israel myself. And um, no, actually, it was you were my boss. Two thousand and two, I joined. Yeah, just for one year then. And and, uh, and um, um, but she has been published, as you would know, in a great many distinguished places, uh, and and has had a number of impressive and substantive think tank positions, including chief researcher of the IDF's Operational Theory Research Institute, and I believe the head of the Middle East section of the, which I believe you still are, of the Center for Security Policy. So she is a remarkably qualified person. And um, we're, I think, principally talking about the current crisis in Israel, so I will start off by asking you, I'm, I'm sure you're all pretty much familiar with it, but the position of the judiciary in Israel is unlike any other country, and, and it is really the only country I know of that is ultimately dominated by the Supreme Court, by non-elected people, and not only non-elected, but by in a court system where they replace each other. 
the majority of these selection panels are sitting judges. So they just keep replacing themselves. And um, this is not, in fact, a democratic system. But it, it, it's what you have there is at the philosophical level, an argument between the forces led by the former Chief Justice, President Justice, I think it's called, uh, I won't pronounce it right, but Aharon Barak, and um, uh, the, the argument being that justice is, is everything, and where there is, as he says, no judge, there is no law, whereas in most democracies it's rather the other way around, and the judges are there to apply the law. And uh, uh, the way this is ramified is that the powers of the Supreme Court include the ability to dictate to the Knesset, to declare who should be invited into a government, rejected as a member, minister of the government. Um, uh, the, uh, uh, the adjustment of the criterion for judicial decision-making from straight interpretation of the law to accommodation of the views of what uh, is, as I understand it, described as um, the enlightened community of Israel, which is defined by Chief Justice Barak and others as reasonableness, but in practice turns out to be a rather collectivist view of the world, uh, dogmatically and narrow-mindedly enforced. Uh, bear in mind, these are not elected people, and um, other than by themselves. And this, when all the cant and emotionalism is stripped away, is the, uh, tell me if I'm mistaken, Carolyn, but is essentially the core of the present crisis because the Netanyahu government has a clear majority in the Knesset and came in on a platform that included a revision of these, uh, as they consider them to be undemocratic rules, and they, they have a clear mandate, but it is being fiercely contested. And, and so let me start by asking Caroline to tell us what the current state of play is. It's, a, it's an intense controversy, and I am, must admit, I am not adequately knowledgeable about what happens when you get into that kind of a wrestling match between the elected government and the Knesset majority and the entrenched court system in Israel. So would you tell us, first of all, was my, to the extent my summary was not accurate, please fill it in. And, and can you tell us how it looks? How, who's going to win? Um, so yes, your summary was, was extremely accurate, acute, uh, accurate and, uh, and precise. And so I uh, congratulate you because it's very difficult to know the realities of the situation since um, the media in Israel doesn't cover it. They hide it. They've been hiding it for 30 years now since uh, Aaron Barak enacted his uh, judicial revolution, what he referred to it as a judicial revolution, behind everybody's backs when we were doing other things and uh, transformed Israel from a parliamentary democracy into what is being referred to as a juristocracy or a loracracy of uh, a rule of lawyers as opposed to a rule of law. And um, so, uh, yes, uh, what you said is, is correct. And again, I congratulate you for actually knowing the situation because it's been very difficult for most people, not only abroad, but also in Israel to discern because our media are not simply biased. They are full members in a political campaign uh, 
against Israeli democracy. And, and here I think it's important to note, I mean, we were talking about um, the, the, the relationship between the judicial branch, such as it is, and uh, the democratically elected organs of, of uh, governance in Israel, the Knesset and, and, the, uh, and the government, are, it's really a fight between two systems of government. One is an oligarchy and the other is a democracy. And so it is very difficult to find a compromise between the two, and it doesn't seem like it should be that way because under a normal parliamentary democracy or any kind of democracy where you have a separation of powers and each branch of government accepts limits on their powers, then it isn't a it isn't a fight between regimes. It is a, a, a it's a question of uh, realigning the balance of power through various. Uh, uh, means, whether it's in the United States through constitutional amendments or um, in other, uh, other, other parliamentary, system, parliamentary or presidential systems of other things. In France, they just form a new republic, um, but it's a, uh, but which in and of itself is a constitutional reformation of, of the governing system of France. Um, so, you know, you have uh, if you've all agreed that you live in a democracy, you live in one kind of a regime, then when you have clashes between branches of government, they don't seem uh, to be so bad. They aren't existential crises. There are power struggles, there are disputes, whatever. Here it actually is sort of an existential battle because you're actually talking about two distinct uh, forms of government. And so um, I, think, um, I think that's what we're seeing. Uh, yes, today uh, Haaretz is having a conference and Haaretz uh, is really come out of the closet as a hostile entity inside of Israel as opposed to a, a newspaper. This week they posted an editorial calling for the United States to work against Israel at the UN. So I mean, they're talking, they're calling for a foreign government to wage battle, uh, diplomatic, albeit against their own country. So I think that takes them out of the category of media. Uh, but I don't think that they're alone in the new category of propagandist. I mean, they put Pravda to shame. Um, and so, you know, and, and at their conference today, former uh, Supreme Court Justice uh, Cheshin said that there are no limits on the on the power of the courts that not only i mean they barack said that the basis of the of the court's powers is uh the basic laws of israel that he accorded constitutional standing to so he said that the source of the of the supreme court's power are the basic laws and now the supreme court has arrogated it to itself the power <coughs> to actually uh, cancel basic laws. So now they're they're saying that they're actually even more powerful than the source of their power. So there is no source of power. So what's their source of power? It's exactly what you said. It's this concept that justice only exists with the presence of of judges. Law only exists with the presence of judges. And that there's that there's something um, primordial about a judge that. Uh, predates everything else that is the foundation of all you know in the beginning there was a judge well yes but he was god right i mean so but not in their view in their view they are god and so that's also why they're so uh, um close to the concept of of compromise 
their decisions aren't judicial decisions, they're revelations. They are, though. You're but, absolutely right. Um, and if I may add, the um, whole picture is further clouded and envenomed by the spurious prosecution of the prime minister. Uh, again, if you aren't familiar with it, uh, I believe an exhaustive and indiscreetly conducted investigation was conducted trying to find evidence of a bribe um, given by the given by the prime minister to one of the newspapers. Uh, uh, it's actually a minor website called Walla. Uh, and the um, um, <clears throat> there was no evidence of it. So the uh, the attorney general is a completely detached official. He's not really accountable to anyone. No. Uh, well, he is. He's accountable to the, the justices. Supreme Court, yeah. Uh, but, but I mean, anyone elected. And um, he then came up with the novel theory that a favorable article in the media constituted a bribe of the person uh, that the article was written about, and therefore uh, the prime minister had been bribed by a media outlet, even though there was no movement of money and the general attitude of that media outlet was critical of Netanyahu. Right. It wasn't as if it was whitewashing him every day. It was one favorable article. And, uh, and in order in the somewhat imitative of the American system, in order to round up witnesses for the prosecution, they threatened to charge them with obstruction of justice and other offenses if they didn't come forward. This is the American method, uh, of which I'm familiar. And, uh, and the, um, uh, so they did. They, they got, I think, 20 witnesses. But then once they were sworn and were giving evidence, they all, all of them, I believe, were exculpatory of the prime minister and said, this is bunk. There's no truth to any of it. So they're, they're kind of stuck with this turkey of a case. But opinion there is so inflamed. It's a little like some of Trump's problems. I mean, Trump and Bibi are, I, mean, I know them both quite well and have for a long time. They're very different people. But there are some similarities in their positions. Um, but what I want to ask you is, who was going to, I mean, am I right that ultimately the Knesset can amend the basic laws and, and change the matters that I summarized in my intro? And, and Baby has the majority, so when can he force the vote? I mean, he is going to win, isn't he? Yeah, but then what we're going to see, and so what Fashion <coughs> said at the, at the Haaretz conference isn't only that they have the power to uh, under, or to cancel basic laws, the source, the ostensible source of their power, in their self-created constitution, um, but also that they uh, that there's a very high likelihood. Wonder what he meant that they're going to cancel the laws that the that the Knesset passes. Um, so, you know, the Knesset passes law to limit the powers of the Supreme Court, and then the Supreme Court says we don't accept these limitations, and we're canceling your laws to limit our power. We don't accept limits. So, um, that's where the politics become critical, and that's why we're seeing people like Ehud Barak, who I, I'm just looking at the uh, news briefs while we're waiting to start this event. So Ehud Barak, the former prime minister, not related to Aaron Barak, but both insidious people, um, they, uh, so he has been one of the leaders of the riots against the government that's been going, that have been going on now uh, for seven weeks. And so he, um, so he attacked in his speech at the Haaretz conference <clears throat> the president of Israel, Yitzhak uh, Herzog, who has said that the you, you, sides... The, the president of Israel. Right, mm -hmm. who said that the, the sides have to come together and reach a compromise. 
And he said, there's no compromising that this is an illegitimate government. Um, and uh, therefore, we can only fight. And he's among the former chiefs of staff of the army, uh, inspector generals of the police, uh, former heads of the Shabak, who have come out uh, with calls for civil war, insurrection, disobeying orders. Um, and yesterday, I think it was, the former inspector general of police, the one who railroaded Netanyahu in, in the investigations, Roni Alshech, said that if uh, if he were now the police commissioner uh, and they were forced to decide whether to follow the orders of the Supreme Court or of the government, that they would follow the orders of the Supreme Court. So this is a complete, I mean, he should be in jail in a normal government he would in a, in a normal country he would be he would be in jail for saying that because that's a call for rebellion and that that's a, that's a felony um, but there's been a lot of that going on now with these very senior former uh, officials in Israel who are calling for civil war and and insurrection and doing so openly um, and and that's really disturbing and then the people who are now fulfilling these positions like the IDF chief of staff um, which is another whole story. He was he was appointed by a government that had already fallen. Uh, it was an illegal appointment that the attorney general, who also opposes the right wing, that was appointed by the the past government, approved, despite the fact that under the instructions that the her, her predecessor put in place for Netanyahu's interim government, it was illegal what they did. But anyway, so Herzl Levy was was a. Uh, 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 was appointed two weeks before the election, and he's been quiet. He <coughs> refuses to stand up to his predecessors who are calling for civil war, and so that places everything in a difficult position. So when you ask how is this going to, how is this going to play out? We're in a full-blown constitutional crisis. Um, it's going to probably get worse before it gets better. But the only way, despite the majority in the Knesset, uh, my feeling is, my fear is. And my feeling is that um, two things have to happen. One is, one of them, there are basically three leaders of the political opposition as opposed to the opposition in the streets, the former pri prime ministers, the four, like Olmert also was calling for civil war last week. So the former prime ministers, the former chiefs of staff of the army, like Barack was also a former prime minister, um, and his colleagues. Um, uh, so they're not the heads of the opposition. The heads of the opposition are Yair Lapin, who has 24 members of Knesset that he controls, and Benny Gantz, the other former chief of staff of the army, who has 12 uh, members of Knesset that he controls, or Esther Chayut, have to, uh, who is really the head of the opposition. She, in a stunning move, gave a primetime press conference uh, a few weeks back where she essentially called for civil war. I mean, she said that the, that the government and the Knesset have no legitimacy to pass legal reform. It's as if she's never read a law book. Of course they do, right? I mean, they are the sovereign in Israel. They're the repository of the people's will as elected officials. So one of those three people who has actual governing power has to put his foot on the brakes and start accepting legitimacy of the power of the government. Because if, if and, and sit down as the president has called them to do and negotiate a compromise on this package, because it's true that the government 
has 64 seat majority. There's absolutely no doubt that it can put forward and pass all of the laws that it wants to. But it, but what the left is threatening, and in a really a fascist way, is to set the country on fire. They're acting like BDS uh, activists. They're calling for the international financial markets to abandon Israel. They're calling for Israel's top uh, 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 business leaders to withdraw their holdings from the country. They're calling on Moody's and other credit uh, uh, credit agencies to lower Israel's credit rating. They're trying to tank the economy. They're trying to set our country on fire with their riots and their calls for civil war. Um, so um, this is the rule of the mob, and they're using all of their power in high tech, in finance, in the army, in the police, the media. in the media, and the media is just leading the charge. I mean, you, you turn on the radio, you turn on the television, they call it the, the judicial coup that the government is carrying out, the judicial revolution. It, it, I mean, it's not even a counter-revolution because the reform packages that are being legislated today are, you know, I said in an earlier talk uh, during this visit that, you know, they're not really even to my liking. They're too moderate. They leave too much power in the hands of, of the judiciary. Mm. They leave too much power in the hands of the attorney general, who's not accountable to the government. Um, I'm hoping that in later no, or phases- Or the parliament, right? Right, and yeah. in later phases of this, there's supposed to be six phases. We're in the first, and the most critical, because if this doesn't pass, nothing else will pass. But, you know, it, 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 I find that it's ridiculous, I think it's ridiculous to allow the court to keep their power to uh, to to cancel laws when that power was seized by them. It was never transferred to them in any legal way by the Knesset. They just invented, Barack invented this power, and it has no limits on it. So what, what Yariv Levine's proposal said, he's a justice minister, is we just want to put limits on this power. And, and uh, in a way, the thing that's so amazing about the proposals is their minimalism and, and also... I mean, all that they're doing is they're saying, let's live in the same regime. Let's not have it be a question of oligarchy versus parliamentary democracy. Let's all live in a world of parliamentary democracy, which means that each of us has a lane, right, that we're responsible for. The government is responsible for governing. The Knesset is responsible for legislating. And the justices of the Supreme Court and the judiciary is responsible for uh, interpreting the laws, but but base your judgments on the law. You can't say that something is unreasonable in my eyes, and therefore, regardless of what the law says, I'm going to ban the law, or I'm going to bar uh, Arya Derry from serving as a minister. And now they've agreed to accept a petition about whether Itamar Ben-Gvir, the minister of public security, has a right to be a minister in the government. They're going to adjudicate another petition asking whether Netanyahu has a right to be prime minister of Israel. I mean, so they're retroactively acting to disenfranchise all of Israeli voters. And the opposition, of course, is happy with that because Israeli voters didn't vote them into office. But, you know, so all Yariv Levine's proposals do is say to the judges, you live in a democracy, accept that. We can talk about the limitations that we place, the, 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 the expanse of those limitations or the narrowness of those limitations, but you have to accept limits. You have to accept checks on your authority. 
And, and so the spasm of violence that we're seeing and the calls for civil war uh, that we're hearing is a consequence of their unwillingness to accept democracy as the regime under which Israel is governed and their desire and, 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 and obsessive, um, violently, uh, uh, violently expressed opposition to the very concept of democracy that lies at the heart of what we're seeing in Israel today. But let me ask you this. Um, these people glibly calling for civil war, are they seriously calling for the population to take up arms against the government? Insurrection? I don't know. I mean, I, I mean I, a Jewish intifada? I mean, I, I, the, the, what do the polls show? The majority of Israelis can't possibly support that position. Well, I mean, you know, all the polls are lies. I mean, like they're putting out polls that are showing, you know, 70% of Likud no, no, voters no, are opposed to this. Polls, you know, you know. It's hard to know. I, I don't think, even the numbers, they say these mass protests. Okay, so they have somewhere between 20 and 20,000 and 75 million people, depending on which channel you're watching, showing up at their rallies, right? Not, not and, 75 million. Well, I don't know. I mean, you, you check what Channel 12 is saying. They, they may have reached a billion. I'm not sure, you know, but... So, but 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 if you wanted to take a, probably an overly uh, overly uh, solicitous estimate and place it at an average of eighty thousand people well, at these protests, not so many. It's not that many, yeah. exactly. And you know, and there are almost no young people there, which is really interesting. The average age of the demonstrators is over fifty. Well, is um, there the slightest doubt that if it came to a test of force? the IDF would follow the orders of the government? So that's the thing, right? I think um, what we've seen increasingly over the past 20 years is that there's a real division between the general staff of the military that's very influenced by the state, the, by the Pentagon and by the Israeli elite, which is what we're seeing in the streets today, um, and the rank and file going up to a brigade, maybe division commanders. So I think that if they tried to go to war, they wouldn't have any soldiers. So I think that they're that they're cognizant of that, which is why they're being quiet as opposed to uh, siding with uh, with uh, with the Supreme Court. But um, so I think that the generals, if they had the support of their troops, who knows what they would do? But they don't. So I think that I think that they're cognizant of that, and they're not going to try. But you know what I think? I mean, I look at them. They remind me of Joe Biden. Mm. Joe Biden is a screamer. But he doesn't seem to be completely, I mean, he has no strategy. Like you look at what he's done in Ukraine, you know, he's, he's putting us on the brink of nuclear war. No, I don't think he's doing that, but he, I agree, he has no exit strategy. But he doesn't even have, I mean, he didn't, he didn't, he didn't seem to think that, you know, there was, were gonna be consequences to what he did and what he said when he called for Putin to be ousted as if that, could ever happen. Well, it's, you know? as if it's America's business to choose who, who governs well, even Russia. Even if it is, but even if it were America's business, the, the point, I don't want to get into a discussion of Ukraine, but all that I'm saying is that when I listen to Joe Biden very often, I get the sense that he doesn't understand that there are real world consequences to the things that he says as U.S. president. And by the same token, I, I get the sense, especially, I mean, Yair Lapid is a, like the sterling example of this. The guy does not think there's any meaning to words. He just throws them out. Like, it, it's like, 
I mean, he contradicts himself almost every day, and he says things that are totally outrageous. Then he turns around and says 180 degrees the opposite, and he doesn't think that it, there's any reason to comment on it. I mean, it, this is this is a guy. He he's like the the apotheosis of a postmodern politician, where nothing has any meaning, where everything is just contextual. And um, you know, if on Thursday it's it's raining, then he's going to be opposed to the you know to to be we're being over we're being overwhelmed by water. And then on Friday, if it's hot and sunny, he's going to say that we're going to die of drought. I mean, there's no yesterday and there's no tomorrow in anything that he says. It's all just right now. And so you know, you you look at you look at somebody like that, and you listen to what they're saying when they're talking about civil war, and you get the sense that they're all just like children, like they don't understand that people take <coughs> words seriously and that words actually do have meaning. So on that sense, you could say you're more sanguine about you know, the prospects, but on the other hand, they're also very out of control. I mean, last week, these veterans from the Yom Kippur War, and they're sort of like, for whatever reason, they are the instigators of all of this stuff, these 70 year old, uh, a veteran from uh, the Suez Canal uh, campaign in 73, they stole a tank from a war monument in Tel Saki in the Golan Heights. They put it on, this kibbutz had like a tank um, carrier, I don't know why, and they wanted to drive it to Jerusalem. What were they trying, what was that? Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. And metaphor, gee, I can't, and, and then they spray painted on the stank that they stole, democracy, and they, they, they wrapped it up in the Declaration of Independence, and they thought that they were being profound, bringing a tank to Jerusalem, you know, and they got interdicted. And thanks to our incredibly unfair system of law enforcement, they weren't even arrested. You know, but they, but they're stealing tanks. They're taking tanks, like in 2010 when they had these social justice protests on Rothschild Avenue. The same people who are doing it today, uh, funded by the same funders from America, the New Israel funded and whatnot, they had a guillotine up on Rothschild Boulevard in Tel Aviv. What were they trying to say? Gee, I don't know. I mean, like, I, I don't know. Are they capable of violence? Yeah. Will they resort to it? 
I think that they're expecting the police to start shooting our our prime minister for them. Yeah, that's what I that's what I fear. Well, is, is there a, a lot of violence going on politically motivated right now? Well, I'll give you an example of what happened on Sunday morning. Sunday morning, the Knesset at nine thirty passed the first reading of of the first two reforms, which are the Judicial Selection Committee and I'm gonna say, is it the reasonableness clause that they're taking out? I think, I think it was a reasonableness clause, but I'm not sure it was. At any rate, two out of the four reforms, uh, they were passed in the first reading, then you have a second and third afterwards. This is the beginning of the legislative process. So these uh, activists, Sunday morning, showed up in the apartment buildings, not in the lobby, on the floors outside of the doors of the apartments of Education Minister Yoav Kish on the one hand, who's also a member of, of Knesset, and member of Knesset named Tali Gottlieb, who's from the, uh, Gottlieb, who's from Likud. Tali's divorced. She has, uh, I think, four kids, but one of them, and she's a champion of the rights of disabled children because she's the mother of a highly autistic daughter who's like eight or something. And so uh, Tali, uh, had these uh, Antifa-like cry bullings. You know, they looked like American college students who need their quiet rooms or whatever it is. So they, uh, they're safe spaces. So they, they were, they occupied the, they'd had a sit-in outside of her apartment door and they started screaming at her and they legally imprisoned her. Right? They wouldn't let her come out of their, out of her apartment and they terrified her little girl. And again, this girl, you know, she's, she's not open to reason. She's severely mentally disabled. And um, so they wouldn't let her take her to her, uh, her daycare or school or whatever, uh, or leave her building. And uh, the girl finally was, uh, the police got rid of them. They didn't arrest them. They only arrested two out of the 20 that were there. And then they were let out by a magistrate court's judge the next day, which is something that would never happen if they were religious and supporting the Judean, you know, con the control of Judea and Samaria, or if they were Haredi, but, or Ethiopian, or working class uh, denizens of uh, working class neighborhoods in Tel Aviv, fighting illegal immigration from, from Eritrea. Um, all of those, they would have been pulverized by the police and left to rot in jail until some magistrate courts on appeal decided that they should be allowed out uh, for a while until their trial. But um, they were all let out the next day, just these two. And uh, her daughter had like a psychotic fit, you know, because she was terrified by these people and Tali was begging them to leave and they refused. So. You know, that's violence. They knew what they were doing. Tali is an outspoken champion of, of children. She was saying, you're terrifying my daughter, you have to go. And they refused. And they refused to leave. And they said, somebody else is gonna have to take her to school because you're not allowed out of your apartment. Th these are, you know, these are, these are multiple felonies being committed at once. And um, they don't care. So I think, you know, that's a manifestation of thuggery that we've never seen before in Israel, as far as I can remember. And it's only getting worse, it's not getting better. There is a pattern for the resolution of these things in sophisticated countries that have fragile institutions, which uh, the one I would cite was, some of you would remember the 
general strike and student strike in France in 1968, General de Gaulle gave an address that didn't have any effect at all. So he went back to his village and sat there for two weeks. And then gradually everything broke down. I mean, nothing, nobody was working. And um, then he ostentatiously visited the operational head of the French army, which at that time was a large army. And it was only five years after the end of the Algerian war. And the French army was notoriously heavy handed when it mm -hmm. intervened in civilian matters. And, you know, he being the personality he was with the background he had, there was no question he had the absolute loyalty of the army. And this was confirmed in his visit to General Massou. And then he gave his famous four and a half minute speech in which since the state-owned broadcasting network, ORTF, was on strike, they just had a still picture of the President of the Republic, but his voice. And he said that... Uh, as he put it, uh, as the sole legitimate repository of Republican power, I have considered every means, I repeat every means for the conservation of that power. You're saying this has to end or we're using the army. And, and then he, he dissolved the National Assembly, called an election, said he refused to change prime ministers, which had been demanded. Pompidou was the prime minister. And then he, you know, he was quite explicit in, in saying that uh, you know, it would all unfold as provided by the Constitution, unless, as he put it, uh, France, is, there's an attempt to gag France by the same methods that the teachers have been prevented from teaching, students from studying, and the workers from working. Well, now, there isn't a de Gaulle in Israel right now, but you, he, had, he then won the greatest electoral victory in 175 years of French off and on Republican history. Uh, if you leave it long enough, the bourgeois spirit of France, and I'm not saying France and Israel are interchangeable, but there are some comparisons, uh, will assert itself. People become tired and frightened and annoyed at, at constant inconvenience and, and the overheated agitation of illegitimate elements. And uh, in, in that election, uh, he completely decimated the left. And uh, again, it's France isn't Israel. There is no de Gaulle in Israel. Uh, but there, there is that spirit of bourgeois outrage after a certain point. Now, can't Bibi wait for that and capitalize on it? Um, it's a very different situation. I mean, I happen to be reading uh, Kissinger's book on uh, leadership now. And, and it's a brilliant uh, book. And, and I don't, I, yes, I, I didn't like what he said about Adenauer, but whatever. But um, he, You didn't what? I, I, well, I didn't like Adenauer. All the things that he admired in Adenauer I thought were horrible, yeah, but whatever. Henry anyway, is a German, after all. I, he's Jewish, doesn't he? <coughs> but anyway, so uh, he, he yeah, but I happen to be on the part about, about de Gaulle, and, and certainly there aren't that many parallels between de Gaulle and his power and, and, and uh, Netanyahu. Uh, I mean, de Gaulle had a, he, he forced the constitution uh, that gave the president. Uh, well, he wrote it himself. Right. He wrote it himself and, and, and it was good for him. Um, and it was also good uh, to a degree to, uh, for political stability in, in, in France. But he, I think, um, I think what has to happen in Israel, and again, this goes back to the question of the kind of regime that we have. 
Um, we have to, Bougie Herzog deserves a lot of credit for offering a compromise. I don't like his compromise. I don't like his political, I don't like his politics. You know, he's, he's a leftist, right? He was a, he's a former head of the, the Labor Party. Who are we speaking of? The president. But yes. what he did was he accepted the legitimacy of democracy. He said, okay, let's sit down and talk about this. Let's, you know, I, I, this, is my, this is my proposal. Why don't we use it as a basis of negotiations? It's a, it's a proposal that I absolutely don't like, but let's negotiate. The concept is let's reach common ground, okay? Not scorched earth, but common ground. I mean, de democracy is especially in a, in a Jewish context, but not only, I mean, the, the concept of a Jewish state not being a democracy is, it only seems possible if you ignore the fact that it's Jewish, because I mean, we don't, we're not good at accepting authority. You know, we, we're not that kind of people. Like the, 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 the character of the Jewish people is rebellious and it, slightly you know, argumentative. Yes, and no, it's it's funny, but it's also true. And so there's essentially no way that Israel, even under King David, the greatest leader that we had aside from Moses, it, it was much more of a constitutional monarchy than anything that existed in the ancient world, because he had to constantly get people on board with his program. And it wasn't taken for granted that he was going to be obeyed because he was the king. He was not a pharaoh. He was very, very different from that. And so, because he had divine law and, and that, that he was beneath. So, you know, the, the, the whole concept that there could be anything other than democracy is only true when you recognize that what we have now is an oligarchy. So what, what Herzog put out was a proposal I don't like, but it's a proposal that's based on the concept of the legitimacy of the democratic process. And, and the difference between an oligarchy led by, led by uh, judges and lawyers in general is that their way of adjudicating disputes is inherently anti-democratic. And by that I mean, when you look at Congress or the Knesset, or I would assume the Canadian parliament, what you see is a lot of log rolling, a lot of, a lot of okay, you get this, I get that. Nobody is happy, everybody gets 60%, right? I mean, there's always, the, it's all about compromising to get an outcome that is acceptable to people who fundamentally disagree on a lot of things. It's trying to find common ground wide enough to reach outcomes that are minimally acceptable to everybody. All right, that, that's what democracies do. They, they reach compromises between disparate groups. They don't reach an absolute conclusion, which is the nature of adjudicated decision. So a judge uh, uh, comes to a judgment and that's dictated down to the petitioners. And either he sides with this one or he sides with the other side or he, he, he requires a compromise that he delineates. But that's not the same. And so it's a, it's a very, it's a completely different way of doing business that is that crushes the kind of 
compromise that democracies exist to achieve. So, um, you know, when you when when you have and this is a point I made earlier this morning at, a, at another event, you know, when they talk about judicial independence, the, the greatest enemy of judicial independence isn't checks and balances. It isn't a democratic system where you have three uh, branches of government that each limit one another. It's when you have govern when you have a politicization of the judiciary, because now the opposition, the political opposition to the government is is effectively led by the Supreme Court, and that means that the Supreme Court is not independent. The Supreme Court is representative of the opposition. It's on the left. It is the repository of the left, which means that its decision can't be made, none of them can be made without prejudice. And, and they can't be made without concern. The justices know that they cannot rule against the left. That means that they're not independent. So the judicial independence that we all seek in a democracy is, is obviated, is canceled by judicial tyranny and politicization of the court, which is what we're experiencing in Israel. It simply cannot be independent now as presently constituted. You, you need to have, I mean, judicial independence means one thing. It means that- Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The judges can rule as they wish without fear of consequences. But now... Of course, there will be massive consequences for any justice who even thinks about ruling against the left. They just won't do that, so they don't. So they, they retroactively disenfranchise 400,000 Israeli voters who voted for Shas, led by Arya Derry, by banning him from serving as a minister in government without basis in law. There was no legal basis for their decision. Well, they claimed he had been convicted of something. But that didn't matter. First of all, there's no legal bar for convicted mm. felons to serve as ministers in the government, so it doesn't matter. They, they, some of them- well, It was a phony conviction, it, right, wasn't it? Every, everything was phony about that decision. <coughs> I mean, it had no basis in law. Even the people who made a quasi-legal argument, it was a faux legal argument. It's, everybody's looking up in the dictionary, what, is this, what does estoppel mean? You know, and, and and even like once we once we figured out what estoppel mean, it didn't have anything well, to do with what they said because we don't you know people from government for that. Well, they did. Um, <laughs> you know. uh, but uh, 
Herzog, or his politics like his father's. His father was a director of ours, so I knew him, and he was a moderate man, I thought, not a yes. leftist. Is his son more to the left? Yeah, uh, but you know, the left is more to the left. I mean, the left in, in, the, 19, in the 1980s, when Chaim Herzog was a president, or earlier, you know, uh, when he was in, briefly in the government uh, under Begin in 77, he was in a left-wing party that was part of Begin's uh, coalition. Um, you know, he, it, it was a different time. I mean, it's like in, in to say, I mean, um, you know, there's a difference between the old left, which is sort of the labor union left, and the new left, which is cultural Marxist. So they're not at all the same. Mm. No, but is the present president a Marxist? No, he's... He's a, see, that's the thing. The left in Israel has been radicalized over the past 25 years. You know, the, the Oslo uh, process, and then what happened really was that in 2000, you know, initially uh, Barack and his then foreign minister, uh, uh, Shlomo ben Ami, and other leading leftists in Israel were under the impression that having what Barack said, ripped the mask off of Arafat's face and exposed that he didn't want peace, that the Europeans and the American left would all rally to Israel's side because we had just exposed, we did everything that we could, we offered them Jerusalem, and look what happened. Yeah. They, but but as, as your wife wrote at the time, when she talked about the French ambassador at your dinner party calling Israel a shitty little country, that you had this spasm, a new birth pangs of the new anti-Semitism which is rejecting Israel's right to exist, just exploded first in Europe and, and, and on college campuses in the United States. And now we're increasingly seeing it in mainstream discourse in the United States. It's captivated most of the Democratic Party today. Uh, Hollywood elites, um, you know, Kanye West is sort of an example of that, but he's not the only one. The blacks in the United States have become openly anti-Semitic. And so you, you see that it all began in 2000, and the left in Israel, when they saw the betrayal of the Europeans who they had initially expected to rally to Israel's side after uh, the Camp David summit failed and Arafat declared jihad and began massacring Israelis in the streets uh, two months later, that um, they didn't stand up to Europe. They collapsed. And they radicalized. So the the same Shalom ben Benami who gave an interview to Haaretz in September of 2000, where he said that the PLO, it works out. They kept thinking that they would reach an endpoint of its demands. That is, that it was appeasable. That is, that there was some endpoint that they could peacefully coexist with Israel at. And what they discovered at Camp David is that there is no endpoint. There is no bottom to their demands. There is no way to reach. Uh, peace with them. Um, but then he turned around along with all of his comrades and became anti-Israel. So instead of instead of uh, re having a <clears throat> reinvigorated Zionism, and now this brings us back to Herzog. So this is a gradual process that most aspects of the left in Israel underwent over the past 23 years. And as a result, the left in Israel has become post-Zionist or in, in many cases and in many respects in academia and the Merits Party and, and much of the media anti-Zionist, um, but there are still Zionists among the left. And today, their leader is not Yair Lapid, 
And it's not Benny Gantz. It's certainly not Mirab Mikhaeli, who's this radical feminist nut job who runs the Labor Party. She's, yeah. she's a fruitcake. And yeah. she's, she's <coughs> butchering the Hebrew language like nobody ever saw before. I mean, really, she's horrible. But she, uh, how can you make Hebrew gender neutral? It's so stupid. Anyway, so <coughs> she, she um, they're, not, they're not the repositories of the residual Zionism on the left. Herzog is. Herzog is a Zionist. He is his father's son. And, and his grandfather is the chief rabbi of, of Ireland. Of Ireland, right. Yeah. And, and so he, he is a proud Jew. He's like a Jewy Jew, you know? I mean, like, you, like he's, he really is. He's, it's not like a, a reform rabbi or something, you know, who, who, like, who, who, is, who has uh, replaced Judaism with, with uh, social justice progressivism. It's, it's actually feels comfortable sitting in a yeshiva and going over a, a page of the Gemara with the students there. So, you know, that no, this but is, what, is, what are, so he if, if he's can, calling for compromise, what's he actually proposed? So he's proposing a change in the selection of judges uh, that would still give uh, undue power uh, to uh, non-elected officials. So there, there would be judges um, and there would be public representatives. Um, and there would be politicians, but the politicians would still be the minority on the Judicial Selection Committee. So, um, but on the other hand, he recognizes that you have to change it. He recognizes that there's a crisis in, uh, uh, crisis in um, confidence among the public towards the Supreme Court, and he seeks to remedy that less by limiting the powers of the court and more by increasing the number of just judges in Israel so that uh, there would be less stress on the judges that are sitting because you would expand the number of judges. Um, so that's another aspect of his proposal. Um, he's willing to have an override clause of Supreme Court decisions, but he wants the majority to be larger than 61. And he... Um, That's not necessarily completely unreasonable. Well, I, I think we can also, if we got the first three things, if we got, if we got um, political control over the judicial selection process, if we got a, oh, and he doesn't want to completely uh, <coughs> eliminate the reasonableness justification for or basis for judge, judgments, but he wants to limit it. I think, I think you can use his, his suggestion as a basis for uh, negotiation because, again, it starts from the basic understanding that the Supreme Court exists in a democracy. And it isn't that it, is, it cannot continue to swallow the entire governing system of Israel. And again, like you and I can agree or disagree on the on on his specific suggestions. I also think that you should have more judges in Israel, mm -hmm. but I want them to be chosen sure. in a certain way, not in the current way. Um, I also, you know, I think maybe you could limit some of the things, and I mean, maybe we don't need the override clause. I think that if you eliminate reasonableness, you you give politicians control over the judicial selection process and you transform the attorney general's opinions into opinions rather than binding decisions on the government, which is what it stands as now, which is insane, 
um, then maybe you don't need an override clause. Hey, can I just emphasize, not everyone here may know this, that you've had the lawyerization of the government, including the military. I mean, I think you wrote a piece about, I guess it was the, was it the second war in Lebanon? Um, yeah, it was in 2007, I said. Yeah, where the IDF had to sit down with lawyers to decide whether an individual target right. is legal. I mean, you, you can't run a war like that. And, and, uh, and there are these officials in every government department who can, who can right at the start say you can't do that. Right, so the problem isn't just the laws of the Knesset, because that's an end point. The problem is that the attorney general and the legal advisors in all of the government ministries act not as legal advisors, but rather as commissars. Yeah, with an absolute veto. With an absolute veto. And so most laws that somebody like myself, say, in relation to Judea and Samaria would want to pass, never get off the drawing board because they're blocked before I've even written my bill by a legal advisor who says it's unreasonable. Now, the, the, that, the reform of that is one of the demands of the government, right? Right, so mm. right now it's just the first reform, which is to say that their decisions are non-binding. Not that they get to get fired, God forbid, but that- it, Their advisory rather than- But that you can hire, you can hire an attorney if you're a government minister and your, and your legal advisor won't approve your action, you can actually, you have to hire somebody to represent you in court. You're allowed to do that, because right now the attorney general decides whether you're allowed representation in court if, if your legal advisor doesn't it, it, like your it's plans. A, it's a recipe for complete paralysis. Yeah, which I mean, is what we've seen. it can't go on like this. So, you know, but I think, you know, I think that, that, that Herzog, the fact that he has stepped up, and you should have seen him. So he's trying to broker something. He's trying to get the left to accept the legitimacy of the majority of Israelis. And, and for that, well, then he's doing his job. I think I mean, that he's that doing a fantastic thing for Israel. I mean, and again, this is a man, and I'm saying this as somebody who would never vote for him, right? If he leaves the presidency and decides that he wants to be prime minister, I wouldn't vote for him. I'd vote for the other guy because the other guy is on my side. But I... But he is, as far as I'm concerned, an historic figure in Israel because if he's able to manage, and even if he fails, I hope he doesn't, but if he manages to get a, 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 a critical mass of, of leftist politicians to accept the legitimacy of the process, then Israel will already be in a different situation from a constitutional perspective than it is in right now where we're basically at the pre precipice and about to fall into it well at least this looks like a path of hope anyway mm -hmm. you have a i assume somewhat respected legitimate authority as the president of the state trying to produce a compromise so it, it mean it's the start of something and eventually the country will get tired of this confrontation well, I hope so. You know, one of the things that we experienced, you know, that you saw in the United States in 2020 is that the rule of the mob worked. You know, I mean, they burned a swath across the United States of America with the, with the Black Lives Matter riots. And, and then, they, then they won. You well, know, they, so they were Democratic governed cities and the position of the Democratic Party was it wasn't happening. And insofar as it was, it was just Trump chaos. 
So nothing happened. So, I mean, but those went on for an awfully long time. Mm-hmm. And they, yeah, they caused massive damage and lasting damage. And yet, you know, people have, have moved on as if nothing happened. So I don't know. I mean, I, I'd like to believe that there's a happy end to this. But then you also look, you see that the United States is intervening on behalf of the mob. Uh, Macron did too, not that anybody cares about him. But I mean, you, you have you have very powerful organizations that you have the U.S. government, not that we care about the U.N., but the U.N. Human Rights Council also attacked Israel for judicial reform. These are, these are, Wasn't these are Barack very... Wasn't stirred up the U.N. too? Yeah, the U.N. Human Rights Committee, mm-hmm. which, you know, which is just appalling. But, you know, they also, but it makes sense because they have all these NGOs. I mean, that's the other aspect that, that I just do just want to touch on in, for a second, which is that when, when one of the things that Barack did was he eliminated standing requirements. And he said that everything is justiciable. So as a result, that you had this industry arose like mushrooms after the rainfall of political organizations uh, registered as NGOs, as human rights organizations, civil rights organizations funded by foreign governments. It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Who then petitioned the court as a form of lawfare against the government of Israel to undermine every single government policy, IDF, counter-terror operation, uh, uh, Jewish property rights in Judea and Samaria, in Jerusalem, and increasingly in the Galilee and the Negev. Um, Foreign governments donated to 38 NGOs like this, 300 million shekels over the last five years from 2017 to 2022. Um, that's almost a hundred million dollars. So you know, and and these organizations um, petitioned the court nearly eight hundred times on eight hundred specific government policies or laws of the Knesset to what the Norwegian government referred to in one leaked document as an effort to gum up the works of Israeli democracy to block the government from governing. So this was all ordered or invited by Aaron Barak when he eliminated standing requirements and said that and declared all things justiciable. So. Look, can I ask you this? These people who are agitating against Israel, the anti-Israeli Israelis, who are calling upon the world to boycott Israel and so forth, what do they? What kind of Israel do they want in the end? I mean, they can't actually want. Um, a, a discrimination against the Jewish people. They're, they're, they're trying to change Israel in a way that, uh, I mean, they can't seriously be actually hostile to Jews. 
because they're Jews. So what, what, is, what do they want? I don't know. Maybe they can. I, I mean, I think that... No, but they're that, not Nazis. No, they but... They behave like that, but no, they but they're, but they're, they're... I mean, do Americans who... Uh, in, uh, American students, professors who say that the United States was born in sin of slavery and that there's no way for it to exculpate its sins... Um, and that, you know, everybody from the founding fathers to Abraham Lincoln is a dead white man who was a racist and we don't and doesn't deserve to be remembered for anything other than the fact that they were white and racist. Um, what kind of America do they want? Yeah, you know, but that, that's really that, that's not more than 5% of the population in Israel. You have a, a substantial number of people who are very anti-Israel. But what do they want to do with Israel? They don't want to hand it over to the Arabs, do they? Well, some of them think that, I mean... I don't know that they've thought this all through. I think that one of the main motivators for these people is hatred, and in some cases it's racism against uh, non-Ashkenazic Israelis. It's hatred of religious Jews. It's hatred of, of Jews who don't see the world the way that they do. You know, they have their good token Moroccans, just like, you know, uh, any normal racist would have their token whoever they hate. And uh, so some, a lot of this is motivated by hatred, uh, extraordinary it's, it's, hatred. It's explained by everything in the West, including in Israel, the following. What they want is all power removed from conservatives. The lesson for liberals of World War II is all socioeconomic political goodness is on the left and only the left, and all socioeconomic political evil is on the right and only the right. This is a continuation of the simmering of the sinking of the Altalena. It's never been resolved. Nope. Israel's already had one prime minister assassinated. If Netanyahu is assassinated, it will not be surprising. They mean to fight to the death, to remove power. It's a story of Canada, the story of Israel, the story of the United States. That is what's explaining these anti-Israel Jews. They do not want conservatives in power. So it isn't exactly anti-Israel. It, no. it, it, they just it want a far left Israel. We see it in the entire Western world today. Mm -hmm. now, now now they, they think that nobody else has a right to rule. Why won't Netanyahu do what he can do to shut this down? Trump didn't have those governors arrested, which he should have, who were harboring the um, governors who were harboring, giving safe harbor to these. The sanctuary cities, they right, should all right. be arrested. So why doesn't Netanyahu come out and publicly say the following? The greatest evil on earth is Marxism. Everyone who self-describes a liberal is a Marxist. We are going to have a judiciary that is impartial and interprets the law and nothing more. And if that requires firing every single one of them, we will do it. Everyone who's on the left is a traitor to Western civilization. Why won't he do that? That's, by the way, pretty much what, pretty much what de Gaulle said in 68. Now, Reagan did that. He called, you can't, call, you, you, if you can't name your enemy, you're dead. Reagan said it. Reagan came out and publicly said, they're evil. Why won't Netanyahu do it? He, he was saying that about foreigners, though. So he didn't say that about Americans. No, he wasn't. He was talking about Russia. He was talking about the evil empire. He finessed that. Yeah, that was the Russians, okay, though. It wasn't Americans. Why won't Netanyahu do this? I mean, he doesn't have that kind of power. First of all, like I said, you know, there's really no comparison to to de Gaulle because our system of government is so different. Aside from that, he's a criminal defendant being uh, on trial and they're using that against him. So the- I the Netanyahu is evil or his enemies are evil. There's no way around No, it. I mean, look, you, 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 you have to understand that we only arrived at this point where we even have judicial reform 
on the agenda because over a long process, I've been writing about this for over 20 years, more and more Israelis have come to recognize what has happened to our democracy. But it was an extremely long, drawn out process. I know I've complained to my friends and my colleagues for years, why don't people get it? You know, look how many times do I have to write the same article. This is driving me crazy. How many more people do the judges have to screw before the public recognizes that this can't go on any longer? No, they're they're not. Let me just finish. First of all, if they're brainwashed, then we can't reform anything, can we? We have to educate them. As opposed to the left that took all of these powers without legal basis, in the dead of night, he gave himself, Aaron Barak seized the power to cancel the laws of the Knesset the week that Rabin was assassinated, okay? In a petition that nobody was paying attention to because it was an economic case. And what did he do? He's like, uh, you know, he's like, he's the godfather. He even sounds like the godfather. So what he does is he asserts the right and he doesn't use it in the Mizrahi case in 1995. So he said, we have this right. I'm not going to use it right now. And he used it later. So nobody's paying attention. Robin was killed that week. Okay. And this is when he made the judgment that they have the right. So all of this stuff is done in the dead of night. Then they assert these things like it's happened all along. Like there weren't 40 years of Israeli history where this didn't happen, where we were a democracy, right? Under under uh, under successive Supreme Courts, we were a democracy and the Supreme Court did not abrogate laws and did not seize the governing and legislating powers of the government of the Knesset. So they can do things the way that the left always does things, by subversion, in the, ba- in the dead of night. And they get away with it because the media supports everything that they do. But Netanyahu lives in a, uh, he represents a side that cannot do any of those things. We can't do any of those things because we're not so constituted. We can't do any of those things because the media opposes us and they want to destroy us. We can't do those things because we have the chief of staff of the army who's sitting quietly and he owes his allegiance to the left. We can't do these things because all of the entrenched elites in our permanent bureaucracy who are much more powerful and proud of their power than even the people in the FBI in the United States today are. It's a completely different organizational culture than you have in the United States, where they're at least a little bit embarrassed about the fact that they've seized powers from the voters that they're not supposed to have. But in Israel, they they make no such apologies for that kind of a power. Uh, Are are you saying that the present chief of staff would not obey a direct order from the government? I don't know. I don't know. I know that the very fact that he was selected in an, in an utterly illegitimate process by a government that had already fallen and for no reason because the sitting chief of staff didn't finish his tenure until after the government was formed makes it very questionable. And the fact that he's sitting on the side and not making any statement, making clear that his allegiance is to the <coughs> duly constituted government of Israel makes it very, it me, leaves this state of chaos rife and and that's a big problem and he should have come out two weeks ago and said the idf is not part of this but 
the duly constituted authority of the state of Israel is the government of Israel and the Knesset of Israel, and we take our orders from the government, uh, and, and period. And he hasn't said that, and that's a problem. When you have five former chiefs of staff who are calling for insurrection and for the IDF not to follow the orders of the government. So why didn't you fire him and replace him? Because again, we are in a certain climate where everything is a cause for international condemnation of Israel. The Biden administration has openly called for the government to stop the reforms, okay? Why do you care? It, it, it doesn't work orders. like that. You, you have to understand, Israel is a, is a country that, whose basic institutions are on the verge of collapse. We have Iran that we have to deal with where they just told the world that they have, you know, weapons grade uranium this week. You know, we, we have a Palestinian Authority where, which, you know, has captivated the Democratic Party, the international left, and Abu Mazen is about to die. And you have half of Israel, including the IDF, thinking that that's a calamity instead of a reason to put on a red dress and start dancing. You know, I mean, th this is... This is, this is a state of play in Israel. And when you make decisions as premier, you cannot just do what you think is correct. Of course, they're committing treason. Of course. I mean, calls for open rebellion, calls on the part of Haaretz editors for the United States to, 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 to carry out political warfare against the state of Israel. These are arguably all acts of treason. But, but you cannot... You cannot, when, when, these, when these actions are being undertaken by, excuse me, the most powerful people in your society, and you are not Charles de Gaulle, you do not have the powers of a constitution that you wrote, but rather are captive to a system like Pompidou, you know, that, that, that makes your government inherently weak against entrenched bureaucracies that, that never change. You, you have to do things very carefully, which is why I feel that the only way out of this that enables Israeli democracy to be restored is if one of three people, Esther Chayut, Benny Gantz, or Yair Lapid, puts on the brakes and accepts the legitimacy of the process, accepts the legitimacy of the election results, and is willing to negotiate with the with the government and with the Knesset. Well, you and reach know a those point. three party leaders. Do you think any of them might be susceptible to that? It's hard for me to imagine at this point because the other problem is, you know, the reason why I'm all all the same hopeful is because there aren't going to be any significant desertions from the government because. Every single one of the members of Knesset that was elected on November 1st has constituents whom he or she promised the, uh, to enact legal reform. And if they don't do that, they will not be back in the Knesset. They can't just join the left and get elected to Knesset. It doesn't work that way anymore. They will, just, they will commit political suicide and or professional suicide. And so I don't, and as a result, because this is, this is a, a reform that's being demanded not by the politicians, but by the voters. So it's a very different situation. The demand for, for this reform 
is a result of all of the terrible things that the, that, the, that the court has done to various constituencies, minority groups inside of Israel, while pretending that they support or protect minority rights. They don't. They protect the rights of the Palestinians and the left. That's it. They don't protect the rights of religious Jews and ultra-Orthodox Jews, settlers, uh, working class Jews. They don't. And none of those groups, Ethiopians, they're not represented. The left is represented. And the Arabs are represented. The head of the New Israel Fund today said, at the Haaretz uh, conference, that if the judicial reform passes, then the Palestinians won't be protected anymore. If the majority of Israelis support the reforms, the reforms will be adopted mm -hmm. eventually. But could I just, uh, uh, what my proposal is that I, I want to ask you one more question, uh, uh, going back to a book you wrote, and then, and then assuming, you know, we will have some time. I, I really should encourage any of you who want to intervene to do that. Uh, the question I want to ask, you wrote a book seven or eight years ago, I think, about, or maybe a little longer, about a one-state solution. Mm -hmm. is, is that still your view of what is the best solution? And if so, can you explain very briefly how that would work? Because it does have its dangers. It has, I mean, I think <coughs> what, I, what I called for in the Israeli solution was for Israel, Israel to apply its laws to all of Judea and Samaria and to offer the Palestinians Israeli citizenship if they abide by the criteria of Israeli citizenship. So that, you know, that already places limits on the number of people who would be allowed to become citizens of Israel because they would have to accept the legitimacy of the state of Israel and its laws, etc. Um, but when I wrote it, I wrote it in 2013. And um, as a result of the misnamed, albeit uh, Arab Spring, you had um, you had a climate among Israeli Arabs and increasingly felt also among Palestinian Arabs of a desire to cleave to Israel. You had an increased number of Arab Israeli citizens who were sending their children to uh, Hebrew schools, to Hebrew um, public schools, Hebrew language public schools, sending them to serve in national service or in the IDF. So you had this integrationist impulse that was becoming reaching a crescendo among Israeli Arabs because they were so terrified by what was happening in Syria and Egypt and, and, and beyond. And so they suddenly realized that their Israeli ID card was probably their most prized possession. It was the one thing that separated them from, from genocide, the way that the Sunnis were experiencing it at the time in, in Syria. And um, so that moment inspired me to believe that this was a possibility. Um, but that moment has passed. Israel failed, I think, to empower the Israeli Arabs who wanted to be fully integrated citizens of the state of Israel and instead continued to enable the empowerment of the most radical forces in Israeli Arab uh, society both the Muslim Brotherhood uh, Islamists and um, the uh, sort of Hezbollah, uh, PLO-aligned uh, communists and uh, Arab nationalists who are PLO, Nasserists, whatever. So that we, we had a moment where we could have, I believe, we could have had almost like what the Americans were trying to do in the counterinsurgency in Iraq, but failed. But we had the possibility of actually doing it, of, of, 
of being good to our friends and bad to our enemies and, and enabling our friends among the Israeli Arab uh, community to become the political leaders of that community. But what we have instead is 10 members of Knesset from Arab parties who are all supporters of terrorism, who all support the annihilation of Israel. And, and so, and, and uh, in 2022, uh, the Israeli Arab community was probably in, in a strategic uh, pivot point in Israeli history. Um, they, uh, they fought against their Israeli Jewish neighbors uh, in conjunction with Hamas uh, during Operation Guardian of the Walls in May of uh, 2021. And that was a pivot point in Israeli history because from now on, everybody planning a war in the IDF has to take into account the likelihood, not the prospect, not the possibility, but the likely prospect of Israeli Arabs joining the war on the side of our enemies. And so that's changed a lot of things. At the same time, I think my basic point remains correct. And my basic point was this, the, the left, broadly speaking, presents us with what I think is an imaginary choice, but all the same, they, they say we have a choice. We can either um, give, surrender, Judea and Samaria and Eastern, Northern and Southern Jerusalem to the PLO, or uh, we can become a state where, um, I guess they call it an apartheid state where we would lose our Jewish majority. And therefore our only option is to surrender these areas to the Palestinians. And I think what I proved in my book was that we are better off absorbing the Palestinians with all of the threat that they may manifest to Israel than uh, enabling the Palestinians to have a state. That the true existential danger to Israel is a Palestinian state in those areas. It is not the policy difficulty of absorbing, whether as citizens or permanent residents or what have you, uh, the Palestinians. I think that if I were to trade my druthers, what would be the, uh, what would be the best long-term parking space for our conflict with the Palestinians. I don't think you can resolve it, certainly not as presently constituted. The Palestinian national identity is built entirely around the appropriation of Jewish national identity and Jewish national rights. It's not about uh, coexistence at all. But, for, but it would seem to me that the Trump plan, which I have difficult, which I have problems with, and there are things that I would want to change in it, but that would leave the Palestinian self-governing authority uh, in charge in the Palestinian, in, in the population centers in Judea and Samaria, not in Jerusalem, but in Judea and Samaria, to the side of Israel that's sovereign over parts of Judea and Samaria, all of the Jordan Valley, uh, and has full military control over the entire area. Um, I think that that hybrid solution is probably the best most stable, long-term outcome that we should be hoping for. That's what I think. Uh, would anyone like to make a statement or uh, 
May I start here? I'll, I'll come to you. Yeah, please. Thank you. So thank you for everything you've uh, both said. And um, you, you mentioned that um, the uh, Iran has uh, brought the uh, uh, uranium enrichment up to weapons grade uh, levels. What do you think is the best and most practical uh, Israeli way to address that, whether on its own or together with other countries? Um, I mean, I think that there are two things that can happen. And they're not mutually exclusive. One is that the regime can fall. And the other is that Israel, in conjunction with other states, perhaps in the region, perhaps with other outside powers or on its own, can use military force to set back Iran's nuclear capability sufficiently to enable the Iranian people to overthrow the regime. So I think that um, the real key here is overthrowing the regime. I think that if the regime is allowed to become a nuclear weapons possessing state, that the likelihood of its overthrow is minimized. And I think that at that point, we're looking at a completely different Middle East because I think that our, our peaceful relations with Egypt, with Jordan, with Saudi Arabia, with the UAE, et cetera, would dissipate. I think they would, the, all of the formal agreements would disintegrate and the, and excuse me, informal alliance structure that we've built with the Gulf state would, would dissipate out of fear, out of terror. And so I think that it's imperative that uh, they not be allowed to have nuclear weapons. And I think our best allies in that right now are the Iranian people who are seeking the overthrow of the regime. So I think that you'd have to have a combination of force and um, active support through all possible means of the Iranian people. That's what, that's what I think. Uh, Trump did uh, provide the bunker busting uh, plane, didn't they? They haven't, they're yeah. not supposed to arrive until uh, it's no longer useful. Yeah, and uh, can we go these two gentlemen and then back to you? Sorry, and then and at the back, please. Not quite. I'm representing my wife. I'm reveling in my minority status. I guess there was a question or a statement, but. Now, there's not much as diaspora Jews can really weigh in on this, but what my concern is, is I see leadership that would always been supportive of Israel, and I, you know, take out J Street, take out the Israel Fund, take those out, but other thought leaders who are in the center or maybe slightly center left are being hypercritical about Israel, about the reform that are taking place now, and that is a concern to me because it means others take cover, and people like. Erwin Cutler in our own country, who's written twice about it now, which surprised me, and even more so, um, Alan Dershowitz. So, I mean, I don't know how you react to that, but that's, that's to me, as, as I said, living Husa'aretz being very, very concerning. And, and, and they don't understand, I think, British parliamentary democracy, or they'd understand that this is not anti-democratic, but that's for another day. But Yeah, I'm, I'm disappointed with Erwin, and, and I had Dershowitz on my on my show, on my uh, the Carolyn Glick show, it's my podcast, um, debating Professor Avi Bell on uh, judicial reform. Um, I mean, his arguments 
not surprisingly don't compel me, but um, I think you know, there's a lot of there. There are a lot of things that go into both of those men's positions, not many of which I don't believe are based on interpretation of law. Um, I think you know the best thing that in an ideal world one would expect for diaspora Jews to say, look, this is uh, just as one would expect from the American government to say, this is an Israeli political issue. Uh, we're ill-equipped to render judgment on it, um, and it's not our place. And therefore, um, let's allow the Israeli people to decide their course on this issue uh, as, as seems most, most proper in their eyes. Um, that, of course, is not what happened. And Yair Lapid actually, again, acting, Simcha Rotman, the head of the Knesset uh, Constitution Law and Justice Committee, mm -hmm. accused him yesterday, I think properly, from the from the podium in the Knesset. He, he accused him of uh, leading the BDS movement against Israel, which is what he's doing. He's calling for a boycott and the collapse of the Israeli economy. This is, this is something unprecedented. Alan's not unreasonable on this. Yeah. He he, he's opposed to the reforms? Yeah. I'm astounded. Um, sure. Uh, speak up, please, a little bit. Sorry. MP Yara Sachs put out a, a letter saying... Um, Who? Yara Sachs. She's a... Member of the Canadian Parliament. Member of Parliament, Jewish, Israeli. Liberal. In Toronto? Yes, yes, yes and, and you should read her letter because I think it, it speaks to the problem that was just raised of, of where diaspora Jews should sit. Now, she claims some is, she's got an Israeli background, but nonetheless, she's a diaspora Jew. And she says, well, we have no place to have any comments, but I'm going to go and tell you that these reforms are terrible. And I, I, I think it goes to the question raised of how, how we're contributing as diaspora Jews and... and uh, well, I mean, uh, not surprisingly, the most outspoken leaders of the diaspora Jewish community are playing a very bad role in this, you know, because the majority of American Jews are on the left. And, you know, if, they're, if, they, if they were the ones who decided the outcome of Israel's elections, then merits would form the next government, and they didn't get elected in the last elections at all. They were wiped out, and labor was almost wiped out. But... But the American Jews support people who are a very small minority in Israeli politics, so it's not a surprise that they would be taking these positions. Um, it's irresponsible, and it's unfair. It's solicited by Yair Lapid. Um, and so, you know, I, I would be very happy, for instance, if prominent Jews in places like Toronto were to put out a letter saying that there's nothing anti-democratic about the, about, the, uh, about the program that's being ushered through the Knesset at all. And uh, every democracy uh, requires... Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. 
Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. There's checks and balances on all three branches of government. How Israel wants to organize those checks and balances is its decision, and that's something for the politicians in the Knesset to figure out uh, in a democratic process. But uh, to, to claim that uh, the the effort to place limits on the Supreme Court's powers, the concept that that's anti-democratic or fascist is insane. And I think that that would be a very helpful thing to do to just sort of, you know, let's, as they say, you know, let's get real about this, right? Let's, let, let's tell the truth that there, you know, you might hate these reforms. That's fine, you know, but let's, let's uh, accept and acknowledge the fact that the Israeli people spoke on November 1st and that their demonstration, that is the act of voting, was far more powerful than any 100,000 people who try to storm the Knesset and, um, and that their will has to be respected. I think that that would be a reasonable position to put out regardless of the eventual outcome of the legislative process that you have to recognize the legitimacy of that process in, in a democracy. Uh, did you have a uh, My proposal is, can we, can we hear from this man, then you, I'm, I'm sorry to point, but just, and then the lady and then the gentleman by the window. Uh, and, we, 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 uh, I want everyone to get a chance here, so mm -hmm. we'd better mm -hmm. speed things up a little bit. I'm sorry, I'm gonna make, a, I'll reduce my answers to 15 minutes at least. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Thank you very much. I found your, your words very enlightening and heartwarming. I have one question though, very simple, and maybe I'm missing something. Um, where was judicial reform? It seems to be the talk of the day, and. Where was it 10 to 12 years ago while Benjamin Netanyahu was in office? How come it didn't raise its head then? How come is it, and people are putting the two together in a way and saying this new amalgamation between the right wing and Likud is resulting in this. And I just want to understand that. Also, the other thing is I'm gonna ask you a favor, and I don't know if you can, if you can pen a little letter, I would certainly put it together because I find your words gonna be a little better than mine. No, I don't know about that. You, you seem well-spoken here. Um, so just the answer to the first question is because you didn't have 61 votes in the Knesset in favor of it. So when Bibi was elected in 2015, for instance, he had, I think, a 63-seat uh, government. Um, but 10 of those seats belonged to Moshe Kahlon's uh, Kulanu party, and they supported the status quo on the judiciary for many reasons, among others, uh, Kahlon himself was being extorted by, this, by the attorney general because they had an open investigation against his brother uh, that they refused to close. So he was under the gun. But you had, as a result of Kahlon's uh, allegiance to the judicial fraternity, you couldn't get legal reform. So this is the first time that you've gotten it. And the reason that you've gotten it sort of speaks to your second question. It's not about the makeup of the coalition. I mean, what they're really saying is that it's Bibi wants to do this to get out of his case. You know, in a way, the case is the best thing going for Netanyahu because, as, as Conrad, you said, the prosecution has fallen apart since the trial began. So this is not true. But the way that Netanyahu was railroaded by the state prosecution, I think, sent the 
is what is the reason we have a majority of 64 seats as opposed to 53 or 55 or 59 uh, votes in favor of judicial reform. It's because the massively could voters rec who hadn't perhaps understood the problem recognized the depth of the problem by the ouster of the prime minister and what effectively was a coup of lawyers. Yeah, so I'd like to clarify something. I resonate with what he said before about the fragile nature mm -hmm. of this deal. It's very, very fragile. But when I, when I look at massive changes throughout our society and our history, everything from when I was born in 1960, almost no cars had seatbelts, then suddenly over, almost overnight, everyone does. Banning smoking. When we all grew up, we knew with 100% certainty about all else that we knew that there are only two genders, male and female. And now, it only very recently we've caught on to, now if you're the head of psychiatry of autistic children and you say that a boy who says he's a girl isn't a girl, you're fired on the spot. So my point is this, even though it's fraught with incredible risk and danger, why do you think that someone like Netanyahu, with the, with the uber majority that he has and the support of all the people, to stand up and, and state the following reality? Those on the left are neo-Marxists. I don't, look, can I interrupt you? I understand what you're saying. Can yeah. I just interrupt you to, so that other people can get uh, the Please. chance? I think that um, the answer is this. You're right, everything seems impossible until it seems inevitable. And that, that's true, that's, that's how revolutionary change occurs in, in, in our world. But I think that what makes it inevitable would not be a, uh, uh, a, a speech like that, a De Gaulle-style speech by Netanyahu. Not I think speech-taking action. No, I don't think that you can do that. I think what will make it inevitable is when we pass the first tranche of reforms. I think what makes it inevitable is that the president of Israel has taken a stand regarding the necessity for judicial reform and the placement of limitations on judicial powers. I think that once we pass this first tranche of reforms, um, it does matter what form they, they, they take, what laws are actually passed. But I think that there's a lot of room for flexibility in the laws in this tranche of reforms. Because once this tranche of reforms passes, then you're going to have uh, resignation by the left to the inevitability of limiting the powers of the legal fraternity. Don't forget, there are another five stages to this process. All aspects of the legal system are now going to be reformed once this happens. But none of this can happen until you have widespread uh, acceptance and or resignation to the fact, after the fact, that there will be limits placed on judicial authority in Israel. So I think that that is the most important thing when you have Cheshin and others stating that the Supreme Court is going to overturn the laws or that they're going to overturn the basic law, Israel is a nation state of the Jewish people, or they want to oust Netanyahu from power, they want to oust Ben Gvir from power, all of these things happening. Until you pass this reform, they're going to be able to say that and they're going to be able to do that. They already did it to Derry. So I think that that's when it becomes inevitable, is when these reforms are passed. Again, in almost any way, if you remember, Chaim Weitzman had this statement where he sent the Peel Commission in 1937, 
said, I would accept Israel if they made it this, if they would agree to Israel the size of a tablecloth, I would agree to it. The problem is they won't accept the, the principle that Israel has a right to exist in any, mm. in any size. So I think the same adheres here. If they accept the concept of limits on judicial power, then everything becomes power, power possible. So long as they don't, nothing is possible, including a, a take to, uh, arresting people or a Saturday night massacre type thing. They, it won't hold. Yeah, there was a... Allow me for one moment before we continue. I don't want to interrupt this process of asking questions and everyone will have their opportunity, but as uh, clearly some people want to leave, I'd like to just do two things. Number one, I would like to thank everybody. You came and thank Caroline and Lord Conrad. And I would also like to point out something that is extremely critical in this discussion, and that is that we have mentioned a lot of things. They have mentioned a lot of things in the course of this discussion. One of the things that got mentioned is, of course, the New Israel Fund that is critical in pushing these reforms and pushing this undermining of the Jewish state in, in many, many ways. And talking about what we're against is not the solution. Talking about what we're for is the solution. And one of the things that we must all be very aware of is an organization in Israel, I have no connection to it all, called the Israel Independence Fund. The Israel Independence Fund has spawned, they're, they're an incubator for organizations, Regavim, Adkan, Shomrim, all kinds of organizations that you'll be familiar with. The Israel Independence Fund maintains a very low profile and, and funds and spawns these organizations. Yes, we hear about the New Israel Fund because they have huge amounts of money the Israel Independence Fund does not have enough money, and it would be a very worthwhile thing to look them up on the web and help them, donate in some ways you can, and be a part of the positive aspect of this. I'm going to do, I'm going to do one other small thing that I don't know if this is appropriate or not, but I'm going to point out that Caroline has come out and, and given us incredible information, so it shared her time with us in a wonderful, wonderful way, and um, um, Caroline is also worthy of support, and anybody who wants to support Caroline is please welcome to do that, and I hope I'm not embarrassing you, I apologize. A little bit, but okay. <laughs> but, 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 but it's very important to, to, to be for what we're for, not against what we're against. Being against something, that doesn't get us anywhere. Let us be for what we're for. And on this note, I open the chair, the table up to more questions. My suggestion at this stage is that um, those who have identified themselves put their comments or questions one after the other, and then Caroline try a roundup of everybody. Okay. And then, and I mean, I understand we're getting close to two o'clock, so some people have to move on. Uh, um, was, was there a question here, and then the lady, and the gentleman by the window? Was there somebody here, or am I imagining that? Uh, that Madam, would you? Uh... Um, I'd like to bring things back to what we can do here in Canada. Because all I used to talk about what's going on in Israel. I'm not an Israeli citizen. I would like to be one day, and hopefully one day I will be. Um, but I'm speaking, taking privilege away from Anita, I'm, I'm speaking as a member of the board of the Canadian Antisemitism Education Foundation, and I'm speaking as a rabbi's daughter and a rabbi's wife. I'm not a lawyer, I don't know anything you want. I have, for the last couple of months, immersed myself in trying to understand what's going on in Israel. What bothered me the most 
and I'll say it in public, recorded, were the prominent rabbis here in Toronto who went and demonstrated against Israel outside the embassy with the mob of the Nuremberg people. These were people who I have respected in the past, they've lost my respect. Um, they don't understand the concept of ma'arit ayin. Ma'arit ayin means you do, there's certain things you don't do because it doesn't look good. For instance, I wouldn't go to McDonald's even for a coffee because some people say, oh, I saw Judith eating in McDonald's. It doesn't look right. So the average person in Canada, the non-Judean Jews, when they see rabbis protesting against Israel, they don't understand they're protesting against some judicial reform. All they see is, aha, the rabbis in Toronto don't like Israel. So why should I like Israel? I'm going to protest against Israel too. And I don't know how to deal with it. I just don't know what to do. Okay. Um, uh, yeah, yes, sir. I, I just wanted to make one quick comment. First of all, Caroline, I hear my 7 a.m. Uh, Saturday morning, Shabbat morning reading every week. <laughs> and I really, really enjoy it. I'm a little bit less black, Phil, than you. I think that over time, demographics is going to help this problem. And the whole state of Israel is being changed. Our redeem, the numbers are growing. The camp, people are having five or six kids per family. Don't you think over the next 20 or 30 years that the numbers change? This is really like the last attempt by the left to try to hold back the obvious change to the state of Israel in terms of demographics and political power. And this one more comment, what you said, if we recall back to the Oslo Accords, did we see anyone on the right, any one Jewish leader on the right that was against Oslo, protesting against Israel, coming out against? The Jewish community was completely silent. Yeah. Even those who were totally against it and thought it was the yeah. worst thing and it was going to lead to complete, yeah. as some of who my knew friends it. Who, knew who, knew, who knew that it was going to absolutely blow up. No one no one screamed, no one protested, no one said a word. Uh, they just wanted to respond to you. That's the difference between conservatives and liberals. Uh, can I just, sure. I, I want to say two things. On that Oslo business, uh, I editorialized about it in the Jerusalem Post and in the Daily Telegraph in London. And my view was it was a, a preposterous agreement that had no chance. But once the Israeli government had signed on to it, it had to be ratified. I didn't feel that the government of Israel could be revoked in Israel, uh, uh, although I didn't think it was a good agreement. Uh, but I also want to ask you something. Do I understand correctly that our Charter of Rights, which is essentially, a, it was a political wheeze of Pierre Trudeau's. It's not... It doesn't actually have a great deal of authority, considering that the parties can, you know, exempt themselves because civil rights is a provincial jurisdiction. Um, do I understand that it is taken seriously and quoted respectfully in Israel and in some of our jurists, Antonio Lamar and others, uh, are, are cited somehow in support of the Barak position of uh, of, of, of this Judistocracy, or whatever you call it. Um, yeah, is this the case? I, I just put that to you. So, do, can you. Give yeah, us and, a, and, and then there was just. Uh, oh, sorry, please. I, I just didn't. My question was a little bit like uh, what the gentleman before me addressed that uh, I also. My concern with what's happening on the left, and maybe that also kind of addresses what you said, is that they are not maybe so anti Jewish as this is their last 
clinging to power as they're losing. I think they lost politically because of Palestinian intransigence and inability to have a partner for peace. And then they're losing now demographically because demographic trends are not in their favor. So that's why they're clinging to whatever they can um, hold on to. Because, I mean, it's, yeah. Well, I mean, I think, um, so I'll start, I'll start with you, Conrad. I mean, I, yes, um, without, uh, you know, my, uh, others can answer this better than, than I can because I don't read their, you know, their, their gobbledygook about the legal basis of their extra legal decisions. But, um, yeah, I mean, they'll quote anybody as authoritative uh, from the outside and, and, and unless they oppose them. Like, you won't hear... Um, the uh, Aaron Barak quoting Richard Posner or Antonin Scalia or or Robert Bork who all said that you know he was a, a, a mafia boss and that this that they they destroyed uh, Israel's rule of law etc cetera, etc cetera, and he was a dictator um, so they won't quote any of of those jurists but of course you know any Tom Dick and Harry in Canada or in Finland or you know, in, in, in outer Mongolia, who agrees with their judicial philosophy is automatically a philosopher king in their view. And of course, their positions are binding, right? So yes, I mean, you see that. And in terms of Marit Ayn, you know, I think you have to uh, ask yourself a different question. Who, whose perception matters to them? Because I don't think that they're thinking as Jews when they protest against Israel, they're thinking rather as progressives. So that um, they're using, I mean, I call them as a Jew Jews. As a Jew, I'm embarrassed of Israel. You know, as a Jew, I oppose this Israeli action. It's always as a Jew, but the Jew for them is an accessory to a, a progressive political identity. So I think I think that, that, that that's the problem that Jews in Canada and the United States and in other Western democracies are facing, which is that you, you, know, you, you do things not as a progressive or as a conservative for that matter, but as a, as a Jew. And so when you, when you have progressives who happen to be Jewish using their Judaism to the, the accident of their birth as a whip to beat uh, the Jewish state, then then you have then you have a significant issue. I think that the way to handle that challenge, which I, I would argue is the most significant challenge that diaspora Jewry faces as they move towards an uncertain future with the rise of anti-Semitism in mainstream circles in their governments and in their societies, is that you uh, first of all, you have to be good to your friends and bad to your enemies. I mean, that's my first rule in all things, in personal relations and in, and in politics, because then people will want to be your friends and they won't want to be your enemies. So I think that you have to make coalitions with people who are on your side. And I think that you have to be willing to disengage from the people who aren't, even when they happen to have the title rabbi before their name. So I think, I think that that really is the challenge of the Jewish communities of the diaspora today. I think it's also Israel's challenge. I think that the challenge of consuls general from Israel in, in the large uh, metropolitan centers in the Western world is to empower the Jews who aren't as a Jew Jews 
um, and to give give them voice and to to facilitate their work on behalf of their Jewish communities uh, in the diaspora and also to expand and protect their ties to the Jewish state. So I think that that's a very important question. But again, when you look at the way that people act, everybody is always acting with a view towards somebody watching them, you know, especially now when everybody seems to think that their life is reality television set, right? I mean, everything has to go up on Instagram. It's, it's, it's sort of pathological. I think there's no sense of privacy any longer, but who is your audience? Who, who are the target audiences for this Marit Ayn? And regarding the last gasp of the left, um, you know, I mean, it's like, uh, what was that we learned in uh, Intro to Economics in freshman year in college as a Keynesian economics. And he said, in the long run, we're all dead. You know, I mean, right now, you know, you, we, unfortunately, we live in the short term. In fact, you know, we live in this, this world of instant gratification and Google searches that poses knowledge, right? So it's not even in the long term, it's in the next five seconds because everybody on planet Earth has ADHD and they can't keep anything in their mind for longer than 30 seconds. So, you know, when, when, you, when you talk about um, the last gasp of something, when they're trying to bring you down in their last gasp, you still have to stand your ground, right? And so, you know, you, you always have to be recognizing the challenges of the moment, but keeping your eye on what's on the path, be what's on the hill beyond, you know, and where is it that you're trying to reach? How to get there? You know, I mean, if I'm going to mix as many metaphors as I want to, then I'm going to say that there's more than one way to skin a cat, you know, and you have to be able to look at this again, going back to your question, right? What is that moment? What is the Saturday Night Massacre in this case? And you see, it didn't work out very well for Nixon, right? It, 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 he, he lost. It worked out very well for Reagan. It worked out terribly for Nixon. And I would say that if you're going to be using a historical analogy, you can't say that it's 1981 and, and Reagan with the PATCO workers. It's, it's Nixon with the deputy head of the FBI, you know, trying to criminalize his behavior and How oust him from office. You, an enemy if you, don't name it? you have you to can't. move on. We're looking, we're looking at the hill beyond. We're saying we want to get to the point where the attorney general is subordinate to the government, where um, the government has the power to appoint deputies, director generals, and all other senior bureaucrats that have policymaking positions in government. Um, we want to uh, clean out the, the stables in, in, in every government ministry and we want to actually vest elected leaders with the power to, uh, to, um, to develop and implement the policies based on uh, not only their convictions, but also on their pledges to voters. We want accountable government that is accountable to the people, not to the permanent bureaucracy. Mm -hmm. These are the things that we want. How do we get there? So again, I think that we're at a very, we're, we're at a precipice. Believe you me, what's your name again? Richard Hoffman. Richard, I am a polemicist. Do you think I would like anything more than to see somebody get up and do that? I mean, it's only what I've been advocating for the past 25 no, years. I, I mean, know. that would make me so happy. I, I mean, Yeriv Levine was at the Yidiot Achronot conference yesterday 
And he told them off. It, it's like pornography. I mean, I can watch this clip. I've watched it like 50 times and I'm traveling. I mean, it's the best thing ever to watch them tell these people off. Yeah. It's fantastic. But you, you know, but, but that you have to, when you're in government, particularly in the case today where Israel's politicians are so weak yeah. in comparison to the court, the media, the permanent bureaucracy, that you have to be very careful. You have to use your ammunition sparingly and always be hitting it at targets that matter and always be hitting it at targets that will then propel you forward. So I think that the idea here is to make maximum use of, of, what, the, of what the president has offered in order to get to the next hill. Because again, when you have a critical mass of leftist politicians sitting in the Knesset. We don't have it, we're not anywhere close. And I'll, and I'll leave with this parting thing. You can't get to the next hill. Yesterday or the Sunday, there was a member of Knesset from Yeshatid, I don't remember his name. It doesn't matter because your Lapid picks them all. They don't actually have, they're only accountable to him. They don't have primaries. And so one of the nameless Yeshatid politicians uh, had a motorcycle accident and he was out unbeknownst to me and I didn't really care. I'm glad he's not dead um, for a couple of weeks and he came back on Sunday. And uh, so there was this video of him returning to the Knesset as a neck brace and all that. And Bibi comes over to him and welcomes him back to the Knesset. And you see, and this is, you know, like they're all manning the barricades outside. You know, they're all calling for civil war outside. And all this is, is just a very human moment when Netanyahu comes over to this Yeshatid uh, lawmaker and he welcomes him back. And the guy is surrounded by other Yeshatid members of Knesset. And they're all, and the picture was beautiful. They're all looking with hero worship at Netanyahu. Like they all admire him. All of these people who say that he's a dictator and a fascist and a criminal and corrupt and God only and Christ killer. I don't know. Anyway, all of the things that they're accusing him of, um, they all like secretly admire him. And, and, the, and the face of the admiration was captured in this photograph, which became viral. And Mayor Cohen is a former um, minister from the last government, the, the Naftali Bennett, the year Lapid government. And he, I think he was a social welfare minister or something. So he was one of the people drooling at Netanyahu in this picture and uh, or ogling at him anyway. So the next morning he's interviewed on one of the propaganda stations. And it was very funny because uh, for 11 minutes, all they wanted to talk about with him is to attack him for smiling at Bibi, okay? Now this is, th th I'm not joking, 11 minutes. All they can do, and, and they're screaming at him. First it's the anchor, and then it's the political reporter, and then it's the legal, and they're just screaming at this guy. How dare you smile at Bibi? And, and I think it's a very encouraging sign because they're in panic. Because at the end of the day, being a member of Knesset means something, right? You're there. You're dealing with people. You know that it's all bull. You know, it's all baloney, right? And, and the, 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 the president already put down a stake and said this is legitimate, all right? So this too, God willing, shall pass. And we'll move on 
to the further goal. And we'll get past that one. And then you will see, without a Saturday Night Massacre, without screaming and yelling, things are moving in our direction. We have to let these processes play out. And the inertial force is already on our side. So I am, I am supremely hopeful. It is really ugly and it's scary because dying elites are still there and they want to pull us all down with them. But um, I, I, I think I, I, I'm, I'm heartened by this moment. I was so happy on Sunday when they passed in the first reading. It was the, what does Winston Churchill say? This isn't the beginning of the end, but it's the end of the beginning. So that's where we are. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.